6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Book of Romans. So God has a problem. How can he justify unrighteous man without violating his own nature? without violating his holiness, without violating his justice. That's his challenge. How does he do that? By giving us the greatest gift. Chapter 3 deals with the problem. Chapter 4 does with, deals with the gift. You know, it's interesting that even Socrates, five centuries before Christ was born, wrote to Plato saying, it may be that the deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. Great insight. Socrates recognized the problem. I can't see how. May, it may be that deity can forgive sin, but I don't see how. He could not see how God could forgive sins without somebody paying the price for it. What insight? What insight? Why did God give us the law? This will surprise you. Why do we have laws? So you behave better. No. So you behave worse. No. Yeah. Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. For sin to abound, that's the opposite of our thinking. Why is the law given? To eliminate any ability of man to rationalize away his sin nature. It's there to show us our sin. <laughs> Every time I think of the, of the law as a mirror, I'm reminded of Walter Martin's he was, for our audience. He's talking about how the law is like our mirror. It shows us ourselves. But we don't shave with the mirror. We're shaved by grace. <laughs> that crude pun was a... Well, anyway... Moving on. This will all be explained in Romans 7. I want to contrast two Adams. The first Adam, by one man's offense, many died. By one Adam came judgment and condemnation. Through one man's offense, death reigned. One man's offense, condemnation to all men. Disobedience of one, many made sinners. This is all in, 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 these are verses from 15 through 19 of chapter 5. And as a result, sin reigned in death. The last Adam, which is the title of Jesus Christ, by one man's free gift, righteousness to many, for many offenses, the gift of justification, through one man, believers reign in life, the righteousness of one, justification is offered to all, the obedience of one, many declared righteous, the grace reigns eternal life in contrast to the death. The failure of the first Adam and the remedy of the last Adam is a contrast that Paul builds in the book of Romans. 
What is the sequence to maturity? We talk about spiritual maturity. Well, there's tribulation. We know what that is. That leads to what? Perseverance. Perseverance leads to experience. And what's the climax? Hope. What a surprise. Through this movement to a maturity, your maturity is when you live in that hope, moment by moment, continually. But there's, you get to Romans 6, this one is a dandy. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. You now, if you're in Christ, you now have the power over sin. It ain't going to reign no more. And chapter 7 and 8 will detail how. What this reads says, do not let sin continue to reign. It's present imperfect, grammatically speaking. It's present tense. It's imperfect. That means continuing. Let not sin you know, continue. How do you do that? How do you avoid that? How do you avoid sin? How do you have power over sin? By insisting that what God says is true. The dominion is now your choice. It wasn't before. When you weren't in Christ, you, didn't, you were a slave to sin. You didn't have a choice. If you're in Christ, you have a choice. It's not a one-time thing. It's a moment-by-moment -moment faith choice. Not a feeling choice, a faith choice. Moment-by-moment. -moment. That's the goal. And when you stumble, and you will, it's first, remember the Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's His faithfulness to rely on, not ours. There are three tenses of being saved. We use that term so... You know, I remember I was, when I was at a conference once, a Christian conference, and there was a, uh, you know, there were some tables and there was, you know, around and there's some extra chairs. And I, asked, I went up there and said, are these, are these chairs saved? The guy looked up and says, they're not even under conviction. <laughs> but we use that term so many. There is the, uh, the uh, concept of having been saved. Have, have, have you been saved? That is from the penalty of sin. That's positional. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and so forth. That's called justification, salvation, if you will. You're saved from the penalty of sin. But there's another kind. There's a present tense. You are being saved from the power of sin. That's operationally. From the Holy Spirit, moment by moment. That's called sanctification. See, we use these theologians use, define and use these terms slightly differently. And then yet there's the future sense of being saved. You shall be saved. From what? From the presence of sin. That's called the redemption of our body in Romans 8. So you can be you have been saved positionally in the penalty of sin if you're in Christ. You are being saved from the power of sin operationally, moment by moment, if you'll exercise that in your sanctification. And you shall be saved in the sense from the presence of sin future. This is all developed in the book of Romans. Why was the law given? To expose our sin nature? To incite the sin nature to sin no more? Sin nature cannot be reformed. To drive us to despair of self-effort? and to drive us to dependence upon the Holy Spirit alone. If you're relying on your own nature, you've lost. You need to rely on the Holy Spirit moment by moment. Let's contrast the law versus spirit. The law depends on the flesh. The spirit depends on God's power. The law produces rebellion. The spirit produces God's desires.
The law results in more sin. Spirit results in righteousness. The law brings wrath. Spirit brings joy, peace, production. The law is not by faith. The Spirit is by faith. These are all excerpts from Paul's other epistles. The law kills. The Spirit gives life. That's the difference. But let's get, there's one chapter in the book of Romans I, I, we just have to, I, I, I can't resist focusing on. That's chapter 8. This is the dessert, if you will, especially of the first section of doctrinal. Romans 8 deals with deliverance from the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. It deals with the realization of our sonship by the Holy Spirit's inner witness. Don't dismiss this sonship thing as just a theological issue. The word, a son of God, in the Bible, refers to a direct creation of God. The, 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 the Benai Elohim in the Old Testament is a term of angels, a direct creation of God. Adam was a direct creation of God. You and I are not. We're descendants of Adam. Unless we're in Christ. In fact, that's even emphasized in John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to them that received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. In other words, that's what we mean by regeneration. You are, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. You're no longer a creation. You still have a body from Adam, but you have, you're a new creation in God's eyes. So. And that's also matured in this whole idea of adoption. We won't take the time to develop that, but you need to understand the concept of adoption is when a son became entitled to the inheritance. And you need to understand that. Also, the preservation and suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're preserved in suffering. That's a growth thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when you get to chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, you have a hymn of praise for victory that's unequaled anywhere else in the Bible. It deals with God's logic of our security, and we'll take a look at that. Romans 8 opens with no possibility of condemnation. The first verse in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Right? And the chapter closes with no possibility of separation. Boy, that's some pretty interesting bookends. Let's take a look at this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. First four verses. Great opening. Great opening. Chapter 5 dealt with the law. Chapter 8 with victory. Chapter 5 was the summation of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 is the summation of what Christ did to provide victory. 5 was the justification. That is to being declared righteous by faith is forever. The guided light in chapter 8 is ensured through the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, our performance is based on the understanding of God's love. Chapter 8, our performance is based on the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, it reveals our relationship to God. Chapter 8 reveals our relationship to the world, conflict, and the flesh. The Holy Spirit is mentioned only once in chapter 5. The Holy Spirit is available to us to give us assured victory all through chapter 8. 
Chapter 5 is the capstone of our salvation in Christ. Chapter 8 is the capstone of our victory in Christ. There's a difference. Now that raises another question. Why do Christians have trials then? Well, first to glorify God. Daniel 8. Remember the, the, three, the three young men in the fiery furnace? Why were they there? To glorify God, which indeed they did. You might find many other examples. Another reason you have trials is to have discipline, to us discipline for known sin. If you've got sin in your life, God may use trials as a way of taking you to the woodshed. That's not the only reason, but it's one of ten. Another reason we have trials is to prevent us from falling into sin. There's examples of that in 1 Peter 4 and elsewhere. Perhaps one of the most important trials we have is to keep us from pride. God hates pride. That's why he hates pride, because that's how sin entered into Satan to begin with. Watch out for pride. We're all victims. Be careful. Another reason is to build faith. First Peter 1 talks about that. Another reason we have trials is to cause growth. You know when a sailor earns a sail is in a storm. Not in a good sunny, sunny afternoon. Another reason of trials is to teach obedience and discipline. Perhaps one of the most provocative ones is number eight, to equip us to comfort others. Are you going through a very unique trial? Maybe God is putting you through that to equip you to minister to somebody with a like problem. Is it a marital problem, a financial problem, whatever? If you're going through that kind of a trial, one of the reasons you might be going through it is to equip you to minister to others. Maybe you'll gain some expertise in chapter 7 that you could, some other, somebody else can benefit by, or whatever. To equip us to comfort others. Another reason we have trials is to prove the reality of Christ in us. And perhaps the most mysterious of them all is uh, for testimony to the angels. We know the angels learn by watching us. God chooses to reveal His plan to the angels through us. We find hints of that, not just in Job 1, but also Ephesians 3 and 1 Peter 1. You'll find allusions to that. But here we go. From chapter, from Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 39 is my favorite passage in the Scripture. In fact, Romans 8.28, you might want to put a tab on that page. I, there are times when almost once a day I'll check to make sure it's still there, okay? Romans 8, let's start with just verse 28. And we know that all things work together for everyone. No, no, no. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Woo-wee. All things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The question is, what's the three most important words in that verse? What are the most important words in that verse? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And I want to suggest to you the first three. We don't hope. We don't suspect. No, no, no. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. 
That's where the comfort and strength that verse comes from, is your confidence that we know that. If so, what follows? Let's take a look here. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And, to whom, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. There's a four-step process. Predestinate, called, justified, and glorified. I think Paul had book of Genesis in his mind. Abraham was predestined. Isaac in his seed was called. Jacob was justified. If God can justify that conniver, he can justify any of us. And of course, Joseph was glorified. Predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. In the four patriarchs, we have that modeled. Which leads to the classical paradox, fate versus predestination. Fate or predestination versus free will. You know, the philosophy books are manifold on this whole dilemma. You know, if things are predicted, that mean they're optional, or are they locked in concrete? Judas betrayed Christ. It was predicted in Psalm 41.9. Did he have a choice? Interesting question. Isn't it? that's, that's, that's the paradox, isn't it? Because both are true. Predestination is true, and so is, and so is the free will. See, it's a problem that you and I should not be faced with thanks to the discovery of modern science because we know today that time itself is a physical property. God is outside time. This is only a paradox when, when viewed within time. That's why we spent so much time at the beginning of these series to spend some grounding in the nature of the time domain. And if that's confusing to you, go back and check those out in the early Genesis. We, in the early, several places in, this, uh, in these studies, we've touched on this. God is outside of the constraints of the physical universe of time. He alone knows the end from the beginning. This is a paradox only when viewed from within the time domain. Step outside that and the problem goes away. The paradox only exists from within the, when viewed from within the time domain. Let's move on. But Paul goes on and says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall say, lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. What does he mean by that? Our defense counsel is the prosecutor. We got it wired, gang. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. In other words, <laughs> the judge is our defense counsel, and he is making our petitions for us. Awesome. The fix is in. He continues. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it's written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Sometime get a concordance and look up all the more than sentences in the Scripture. More than this and more. We are more than conquerors. This is one of them. There are others. 
And you get to the big, the big finish here. I love this. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Boy. Period. Carriage return. Pause. Man. Well, let's get to the second section. There's a little trilogy here in the middle of the book on Israel. Romans 9, Israel's past. Romans 10, Israel's present. And Romans 11, Israel's future. There are other three-chapter trilogies throughout the Bible. You have the three. The Sermon on the Mount is actually a trilogy, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The second coming in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. There's others. This little trilogy is the issue of Israel as distinct from the church. Don't let anyone sell you that the church is Israel now and vice versa. No, nonsense. And that's tragic because there are many, many prominent authors and churches and so forth that are, have no grasp of God's commitment to Israel, despite the repeated commitments in the Old and New Testament. To deny that is to call God a liar. Be careful. There are many, there are many places in Scripture you can have different views, especially in eschatology, or that is study of the last things. People have slightly different views. That's fine. But be careful that you don't adopt a view that ends up making God a liar. Be careful. Don't impugn the character of God in your views. Mm -mm. But this does raise a question that these chapters try to deal with. If God is so faithful to His Word, as we've just surveyed in Romans 8, that none can be condemned that He has justified, and that none in Him can be separated, that's the pitch we've heard, right? Then why have the Israelites, who were sovereignly chosen and given unconditional promises, completely failed and then been rejected? See the problem? This would sound like a rebuttal to everything that's gone before. And that's what Paul deals with. Where does a Jew go? See, there's also a problem of how Gentiles are to relate to Jews. Not only are Jews should relate to Gentiles, but Gentiles should relate to Jews. If circumcision is of no value without faith, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? And when I say circumcision, I include all the ceremonial accoutrements there. This is the same question that was underlying Acts 15. And it is answered in Romans 9, 10, and 11. From Genesis 12 to Acts chapter 2, it's all about Israel. And the whole point of those chapters is that God keeps His promises. And despite Israel's failures, those promises will be kept nationally, not just individually. You see, you and I need a doctrinal understanding, not just a devotional understanding. Most of us in this room, I think, have a devotional understanding at some level. But at the same time, we also need to have a doctrinal understanding of the Word of God. The Abrahamic covenant that we emphasized back in chapter 12. Go back and review that when you get a chance. Every benefit you and I have before God derives from His commitment to Abraham. 
I'll make it of thee a great, and there were seven elements. Remember, I make thee a great nation, I'll bless thee, I'll make thy name great, thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse of thee, and in thee, in Abraham, shall all families of the earth be blessed, not just the Jews. If you are in Christ, you are grafted in. You are grafted in. That covenant was unconditional. It's very important to understand this, because the world at the moment is challenging that covenant. All the tensions in the Middle East are challenges to the God's land grant to Abraham. That was a divinely ordered ritual, where the participants in those days would divide a sacrifice and then repeat the terms of a covenant they agreed to as they watched through it. And what God said, as Abraham set that all up, divides a sacrifice. And the idea was that the participants would walk through it, figure eight, repeating the terms of the covenant. That was the way they did things in those days. Except here, before it after it's set up, God puts Abram in deep sleep. He can't walk through. What's his point? God went through in the form of a torch and so forth. He goes it alone to demonstrate that this commitment is unilateral. This it's unconditional. The terms of this covenant were declared eternal and unconditional. It was reconfirmed by an oath in Genesis 22 and elsewhere. It was reconfirmed to Isaac and to Jacob. And incidentally, when it was done, they were in acts of disobedience. That's in Genesis 26 and elsewhere. And the New Testament declares it unchangeable, immutable. The covenant of Abraham. Very important to understand that that stands and our, our benefits derive from its certainty. There is no other promise like that to any other people that's unique. You need to understand that. And how do we get our benefit? We rely on our derivative benefit from the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, none other than Jesus Christ. You and I derive all our benefits in terms of a Jewish Messiah. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 